And we know this world will never satisfy the pain of our heart. And uh, we're not made for this world. So, thank you for the song, Miss Julie. Thank you, Tim, for the challenge uh, to dads to study the Word of God. Um, and I would challenge this echo and amen to that. Of just be in the Word and study the Word of God. And this morning, let's go to the book of Colossians again, chapter number 1. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll begin reading verse number 9 and down through verse 14 as we take another step through our series through the book of Colossians. You can remain seated there, and I'll read aloud if you'll follow with me. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing now to the reading of the word of God. Lord, give us, give us this morning eyes to see, ears to understand, hear and heart to obey. Or may we work out what you're working in us this morning, Lord, as we leave the doors of the church today. Father, we thank you for everything we've heard already. Thank you for the wonderful music. And Lord, thank you for our time together around the word of God now. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So this morning, I want to just start by saying to you that truth matters. Truth matters. And the truth matters, and I, I say that, and I, I think it is an assumed thing in our context today, but it's important to remember that not only does truth matter, but there is objective truth, and that we can stand upon objective truth. We live in a world today that is denying even the very presence of truth, much less if truth is relevant. And we can stand on the reality that truth matters and that it is present and that it applies to our lives. The Apostle Paul is confronting the error that is coming to the church of Colossae and he is pointing them to the truth and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only hope we have for understanding objective truth is in light of the gospel and in light of the word of God. I'm not preaching expressly a Father's Day message, but I think what we will have today obviously will apply to dads. You know, I think regardless of where I've been, I've always found a couple of universal truths is that people tend often to feel that we don't measure up. That we miss the mark in some way. And then we feel like that, you know, I'm not exactly what I should be or if people really knew who what I was, they wouldn't want to be around me. And, and it's, it's universal. I remember expressly meeting a man early on in ministry, and this guy was a giant guy. I mean, just a giant. He was big old broad shoulders and big tall fella. And I mean, his hands were so big, I felt like he could just pick me up by my head and lift me off the ground, you know. Just a beast of a guy and big hands. And, and, I, and, and then not only that, but he had he had lived a very accomplished life, and he was very accomplished, and 
and had done a lot of things and uh, had a military career and then went off into other areas of service. And yet, as I talked with him, he began to unpack the insecurities that he felt and how he didn't feel like he fit in and how he didn't feel like he belonged. And, and I was amazed by that because I, I thought, well, surely the size of this man would give him a sense of security and a, a sense of measuring up. But I find that regardless of who we are, we always feel like we don't quite measure up. And I, I think another one is we feel like at times we just don't belong. Well, I, I, I may measure up, and you know, but I, I just don't fit in there. I don't, I don't feel like I belong in that group of people. And, and in a church, sometimes that can be the case. And you can stand on the outside and feel as if you don't belong. Very awkward feeling. And we've all experienced it at some level or another. I remember one time when my wife and I were early, already on in marriage, we had been married for maybe a year at the time, and some friends of ours were in town visiting with their family, and they were visiting some of their friends, and they called us and said, hey, we're having pizza and going to play some pool and want you guys to come over and shoot some pool and eat some pizza with us, and we're newly married and broke, and so free pizza sounds great, you know, and uh, I'm happy to show up and go, and so we... We, we took off to go over there, and it was kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing, and, and I remember pulling up to the house, and nice home, and we got out, went to the door, knocked on the door, and it didn't take me three seconds from the time the guy opened the door, and he goes, can I help you? To realize that our friends, who were staying at their friend's house, didn't tell their friends they had invited us for pizza. You talk about an awkward moment, standing at the door, and I'm like, uh, we were supposed to be here for pizza. <laughs> and you get this feeling on the outside looking in like I'm not accepted, I don't belong, I don't measure up. And I think a lot of times in Christianity we can feel that way often. I think there's a hunger in the heart of every man uh, to know that his dad gives him a thumbs up. There's just a, a reality to that. You want that. You hunger for it. I, I, I think of this story of Keith Hernandez, a baseball player uh, of a, just a few years back now. But Keith Hernandez, one of the top hitting records uh, in, in baseball, over 300 hitter, won numerous Golden Gloves awards, excellent in fielding. Uh, he was a batting championship, having the highest average, most valuable player, won a World Series. And he's, with all of his accomplishments, he related a story between him and his dad. And he said, he said, one day Keith asked his father, Dad, I have a lifetime batting average of 300. What more do you want? And his dad looked at him and he said, well, I'm just afraid someday you're going to look back and say I could have done more. In that sense of like, you still haven't done enough. And holding out that expectation, I think lingers in the heart of believers as well. Well, I've just not enough. I could have prayed more. How many of you feel like that? You could have prayed more this week? You could have witnessed to more people this week? You could have read more this week? We could have done more, and there's always more that can be done. And that sense of always more, if we're not careful, labors on us, and it does one of two things. It creates great pride within us because we feel like we've done well, or it creates great despair in us because we feel like we haven't measured up. And what Paul is trying to do communicate to the church of Colossians is that we do what we do not so that we might be accepted, but we do what we do because we have been accepted. That we are a part of the family. 
In Christ we are, not just will be. Phillips and his trends are his paraphrase of this. This is one of those where you kind of get a whole summary of a long communication that Paul is writing, and he condenses it down into some vernacular here that I think is helpful, and so I want to read it for you here. Here's what Phillips says. He says, as you live this life, and this is verses 9 through 14, as we live this new life, we pray that you will be strengthened from God's boundless resources so that you will find yourself able to pass through experience and endure it with joy. You will even be able to thank God in the midst of pain and distress because you are privileged to share the lot of those who are living in the light. For we must never forget that he rescued us from the power of darkness and reestablished us in the kingdom of his beloved son. For it is by his son alone that we have been redeemed and have had our sins forgiven. And we know that we are in a new family now. And this new family operates by new rules. And so backing up to last week, Paul's prayer was that we would be filled with the knowledge of God. To be filled with the knowledge of God means that we are controlled by the knowledge of God's will. That it, that it is washing over us. It is in us. And we understand what God's will is and it is controlling the way we approach life. Because we are filled with the knowledge of God. And we are filled with the knowledge of God as we are filled with the Word of God, and the Word of God is communicating to us the information in reference to that. And he said, now, you're not just filled with the knowledge of God that you might be smart, but you're filled with the knowledge of God so that you may walk worthy, that we walk in a manner that is worthy. And, and, and here again is where we, we can be very tempted to run to human effort again. That now, okay, well, okay, I got to walk worthy. What do I have to do? Can you give me a list of things that mean to walk worthy? And I can check that list off and I'll be okay. And that's not the point of what he's doing because ultimately he's still pointing us to depend upon the Father in the midst of walking worthy. He said fully pleasing to him. This is the wording he uses in, in uh, verse 10, that we would be fully pleasing to him. How are we, even, how are we ever, as fallen creatures, ever pleasing to the Father? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So even in this walking out of this life, he's calling us to walk out a life of faith. It is dependence upon him as we walk out what his will is. Then he says this, bearing fruit. He wants us to be fruitful in these good works. He wants us to produce good fruit. And how do we produce good fruit? Well, John 15 tells us again, does he not? Without me... Ye can do nothing. But if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bring forth much fruit. This is the result of abiding in him. It's a, it's a result of the relationship with him. Knowing the will of God and knowing God produces fruit in my life. And he says, I want it then to increase in the knowledge of God. And so as I know him and I am filled with the knowledge of his will, it allows me then to walk out this light that is worthy to him, pleasing to him. And then it produces the fruit in my life, which increases my knowledge of who God is, which then sends me back to being filled with the knowledge of his will, which then produces a walking that is pleasing to him, which produces fruit bearing in my life, which goes back to knowledge, and it's a constant cycle of growth. You see, there's no place in our walk of a believer that celebrates ignorance or relies upon experience solely. We're not looking for experience to tell us how we know God. We know God through the pages of his word, and we're not going to rejoice in our ignorance. 
There's no place for that at all. Now, that's not to say, and, and then the challenge that Tim gave us earlier, how appropriate that fits in today, that God's people would study God's word. And let me just stop and just say something right now to the men, and this is very pointed to you. It is, it is important for you men to study the Bible, not just your wife. That you would know the word of God. Now, you guys left me on an island just like the nine o'clock did, okay? But the reality is, men, open the book and study the book. And it is an ongoing process of knowing the word of God. It's not something that's done in a week's time. It's not something done in a year's time. But it's something done in increments over a lifetime of getting to know the word of God and reading it on a daily basis and making a part of your life that it would incorporate into your life and study the word of God. Men, we need a revival of men leading in the study of scripture. That they would know the word of God and be able to defend the doctrines of God. And don't tell me you don't have time. We have time for what we want to do. And I challenge us that we would make it a priority. There's no place in scripture that celebrates ignorance or relies solely on experience. And let me say this, there is no place in this journey where we arrive. We are growing until we finish the journey. We're not arriving. It's not a place where we get to a point in our Christian life and said, all right, good. I'm glad I got that cared for. Now I'm a mature Christian. All's good. No, it's a constant growing upward. It is constantly growing. And I think oftentimes people, they maybe look at a Christian and they think, well, that person just grows from left to right. They're just constantly growing and they never, never go back. But if you were to zoom in on that picture a little bit and you were to get some scale on what it looks like to grow, it's not this. It's this. It is up and down and it is falling backwards and going forward and it is constantly growing upward and being more like him than I was last year of growing in his grace and in the knowledge of him that I might be filled with power to accomplish his will and it's all growing in relation and so it's a process. I, I love the fact that he here likens this as a walk, walk worthy. Now, I know that Paul will use other analogies and he'll say we're in a battle. And I agree, we're in a battle. We're in a battle for truth. We're in a battle against principalities and powers. We have to put on the whole armor of God. And, and I, I agree this morning that we are in a race and that we want to run this race. But I would say that though we are in a race, this is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It's a long race. We are reapers in a harvest field, but primarily the analogy that is used over and over again is that we are walking this out. Daily walking it out. Romans 6, 4 says walk in newness of life. Romans 13, 3, walk after the Spirit. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, walk by faith. Ephesians 4, 1, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you've been called. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love. Ephesians 5, 15, walk circumspectly. You can go home and do a quick Google search of the number of times the word walk is used in the New Testament, and you'll see this is just a portion of what he says to walk it out. And what it looks like to walk it out is a habitual practice of daily making progress, just walking it out. And here he's calling us to make this walk. And so in transition from where we were last week, I want to move us into the next portion of this. And so the knowledge of his will and the knowledge of God empowers us to walk worthy. So then the areas of my life that are lacking are areas that the knowledge of God's will is not fully in control. 
where God's will and the knowledge of his will is not understood, it can be seen by the red lights on the dash of my car. Because I'm not applying the knowledge of God's will here. And often, I, and one of the illustrations that always comes to my mind is forgiveness. The reason why we cannot forgive is we are not convinced that God is truly forgiven. We don't really believe God's forgiven. We believe that God is some kind of cosmic bully that holds out forgiveness as long as we live right for long enough. And he holds it over our head as some kind of carrot stick out in front of us, but he's actually just waiting for us to get out of line and he's gonna thump us in the head when we do. And that is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is not that God. He's the God that laid down his life for us, who sent his son to die in our place, and Jesus didn't pay some of the debt. He paid all the debt. He paid our debt for us. And if we can ever be convinced that we have been forgiven, then we can then take the knowledge of God's will and apply it to the relationships in our life, and we can forgive freely. But it's a lack of knowledge of God's will that keeps us from living it out in our daily life. So I challenge us that we would be letting God's will apply there. So then he says in verse 11, all power. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Do you notice three words in this verse here? It is strengthened power might. And literally, we could translate this to say, may you be empowered with all power according to his glorious power. This is the force of what he's saying. He's saying there is power in the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. And he said, I want you to have the power, the dunamis. This is the same word we get dynamite from. And he said, I want there to be a force that is working in you and that you would be all power, not just some power, to accomplish his will because you live under his powerful domain. You're now in a new kingdom. You're now a part of a new nation. And he said, and I want you to live this out in all power. Strengthened, enabled, that's the word here. Force, it's a miraculous power. It's a power that goes beyond our understanding. We do so in line with his authority and dominion, not with our will, and we are never using the will of the power of God to accomplish our purposes. And so what begins this verse leads us into the next part of this verse, and this is where it applies. So if God has given us all power, and here's an interesting side note, is that when the Old Testament wants to speak of the power of God, what does it speak of? It speaks of creation. And he talks about how that God formed the heavens. And when you go to the book of Job and you're in that book of Job and he's writing about uh, God's power and he's describing his power to Job, he talks about his creative power and how he set the foundations of the earth and he told the seas where they had to stop and how he formed uh, Leviathan and he did all of these incredible works. And this is how he describes his power. But when we step into the New Testament and we want to talk about his power, you know what is used to describe his power? The resurrection. It's the new creation that declares his power, and this power was not given to us that it might put man on display. Because it's a glorious power, or the power of his glory. When God is glorified, when God is magnified, there's power in that moment. A church that is a powerful church is a church that is putting God's glory on display. 
that we're lifting his name up around the area and to one another, that God is being glorified. And so we see this power of his dominion is at work. Now, if we have all of this power, what should it do in our lives? Well, pastor, I think with that kind of power, we need to do something to impress this world. Let's have a citywide campaign. Let's have a statewide campaign. Let's have a nationwide campaign. Let's do big things that people can be impressed with a big God. And I'm all for doing those things and seeing God do great things. But the problem with doing big things and never letting God do the small things that we would call small is that big things will come collapsing down on the weight of men's power and men's glory instead of God doing the, getting the glory for the work that's being done. And so we move into the next part of this verse. What is this incredible power supposed to be accomplishing? Look what he says. Verse number 11, his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It doesn't say most endurance, most of the time patience, most of the time joy. The idea here is that we would have all endurance and all patience and all joy. And there's two words here, in regard, depending on the translation, you carry with you, it'll be translated either long-suffering or per endurance or perseverance or patience. But it's two words. The first word that we have here with all endurance, that word that, that we're looking at here literally means to deal with or stay under the circumstances. It's Hupomuno, not that you care what that word is, but the idea behind it is a different word with the same translation. You could literally translate this again, that you would have all patience and patience. But the patience is pointing to two different things. One has the idea, the first, is that we stay under the circumstance, that circumstances of life come in. How many of us this morning have control over the circumstances of life? Anybody? How many ever get mad at the circumstances of life? How many of us spend a lot of time worrying over the circumstances of life? And yet we have no control over it and we spend our days and weeks and hours worrying over what we cannot control. And he's saying, I want you to come through this power to be able to endure, to stay under, to bear up underneath the weight that it might accomplish the work of growing your faith. And we see in James chapter number one that when we stay under, by the way, the same word is used there that we would stay under the pressure and we would let the circumstances of life work in us what God intends for them to work in us. Patience is produced through the trials of life. So he says, first off, patience with the circumstances of life. But then the next one, and this is where it kind of gets really at home. And by the way, God never has to worry about that kind of patience. But he does have this next kind of patience. It's patience with people. It's long-suffering. It's not retaliating quickly. It's the idea of being at peace with who God is and that God is in control and so therefore I don't have to get my pound of flesh right now. I can be patient with people. And so it is the idea here is that I'm going to persevere or I'm going to be patient with people around me without retaliating. And how often do we form a very eloquent argument in our mind when somebody does us wrong of how we're going to set them straight? And if you're anything like me, you're very, very eloquent in your own mind when you're building an argument. 
And my internal lawyer is very much at work, and I lay out my case, and I type up my briefs, and I know exactly where it's going to go, and I want to present my case and let you know why you're wrong and tell you how you should just grovel before me because of what you've done. And the arrogance that is in our hearts to demand that repayment sits there. And he says, I want this power, this resurrected power, this knowledge of God's will to affect the way you face circumstances, and I want it to affect the way you treat people. And, and I challenge this, it, it, here, here's where we put these two together. How many, of, how many of us have ever been guilty of letting the circumstances affect how we treat people? You've had something go wrong at work, and so you bring it home and take it out on everybody else? Been guilty, right? I, several years ago, and my oldest two were in the first service, and they're not here, they're working this morning in other parts, and so my, uh, but several years ago, I was getting ready to go to a, um, a counseling training, family counseling, you know, wanted to learn how to help families, you know, deal with conflict. The irony will come to you in a moment, um, but I, uh, I'm going to do that, and I, I'm, I'm getting ready to leave, and, and I had about a two and a half hour drive to get down to where I was going, and I had told my son, I said, I'll help you with the go-kart before I leave, we'll get the wheel fixed so you'll have it while I'm gone. And uh, one thing led to another, and I was late getting it fixed, and I didn't have the wheel fixed. And he comes up to me, and it's like half hour before I have to leave. And he's like, Dad, can we get that wheel fixed before you go? And I'm like, sure, no problem. We'll get it fixed. And I run into the, the shop, and I start working on the thing, and it was a split rim. And if you know anything about those things, they seize up, and I was fighting with that thing to get it apart. I was beating it with everything I had to beat it with, trying to get the thing to come apart and to get that wheel back on, and I couldn't get it off. And man, I was just pouring sweat, I'm already ready to drive, and I'm, I'm in my driving clothes and clean, and I'm going to drive, go into a meeting, and I'm pouring sweat in the garage trying to get this thing on, and I'm frustrated with this stupid wheel, and then what do I do? I take it out on Allie and TJ. I said, get me the other wrench, and every guy in this room who has ever helped their dad do anything knows exactly what I'm talking about. Right, dads? Can we, can we say guilty, Right? Yeah, and we fussed at them, and, I, and, I, and the irony of it is I'm getting ready to, I'm mad because I'm going to be late to counseling training of how to help my kids, you know, <laughs> and the anger that fills in our hearts over circumstances and a not trusting God, and, and thank God for very forgiving kids, I was able to seek their forgiveness, and they offered it even before I left, and yet we, we go to those moments where circumstances enrage us and then we take it out on others but here's the thing he said i'm not looking for you to endure and endure circumstances and people with a grin and bear it oh just make this happen i you know i'm gonna put up with you one more time you know i know you're coming over for dinner and i don't like them but i'm just not gonna say anything you know and it leaks out in our body language and it leaks out in our innuendos. That's not what he's talking about. He said, I want you to endure circumstances and I want you to endure people with joy. And, and the word literally here means calm delight. A calm delight. How do we have a calm delight? This word is the same word that we find in Acts 5 and 41 when he said they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his sake. They were beaten 
They were embarrassed. They were put on the spot, and yet they left that moment, and they're rejoicing that we get to suffer for him. This is the joy he's talking about. Knowledge of his will empowers us to endure with joy. And what does this joyfulness look like? What does this joy lead us to? Giving thanks. It overflows into giving thanks. Romans 12, 12 says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. This joy we're talking about here, it's not ignorance of life's heartaches. It's not, well, you know, Nothing bad ever happens to me. Life's good. I'm just going to put my head in the sand and ignore the circumstances. That's not the joy we're talking about. So it's not an ignorance of life's life's heartaches, but rather it is faith that is rooted in the reality of what God has done. That it cannot be altered by man and it is continually secured by God. I have faith in the work that what Christ has done cannot be altered by man and it is continually secured by God. And when I have that faith in his work, then I can face circumstances and people with a joy that is supernatural. It doesn't make sense to a lost world. It doesn't make sense to a natural man. He said, so we give thanks to the Father. Why do we give thanks to the Father? Because he's going to explain to us what has been secured by the Father and what man can't take from us. What has been secured by him? Look at what he says, giving thanks to the Father, verse 12, who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. He's qualified you. He's done the work of making us saints, thus allowing us to be qualified to play a role in his work. Only saints can receive the inheritance of saints, And we didn't make ourselves saints. He's the one that made us saints. He's the one that called us to himself. He's the one that's washed our sins away and has secured our standing with him. We now walk in light that we were before in darkness. Giving thanks continues from verse 12 and goes into verse 13. We are giving thanks that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And if you notice here, he ends verse 11 with, or verse number 12, rather, with light. And then we open verse 13 with darkness and we talk about being taken from the kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. We've been taken out of darkness and set into this. We are no longer under the dominion of darkness out of the kingdom of tyranny and tyranny's power. We have been transferred into the kingdom of his son. And here's the thing. Not only has God placed us in a new geographical location, that's not what's implied here, but he's talking about a new citizenship. I'm a part of a new country. No longer is my citizenship in the kingdom of darkness. I have no possessions there anymore. I have no investments there anymore. All of my investments, all of my possessions are found in Jesus Christ. All of the property that we own is found in Jesus Christ because I've been given a new citizenship and I belong to the kingdom of light. And so therefore, it determines that I want to respond differently because of what Christ has done in me. So we've been transferred out of this king. How does he do this? Well, he tells us in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and forgiveness is the means by which God has done this work. But notice the words, in whom? In whom? This is through his son. Not through an angel. 
not through spirits, not through enlightened men. There is no man anywhere that can take you from the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light. There is no man anywhere that can redeem you. There's only one man who could do that, and that is the man Christ Jesus, who died in our place, was buried, rose again three days later, and now through his victorious process, he transfers us from one kingdom into the next. And we are settled in that kingdom. All that we possess is in this new kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. We could say a lot about darkness. <coughs> darkness, we can't see ourselves. In darkness, we don't know what's wrong with us. In darkness, we can't see who he is. We don't understand who he is. We can't see others right in darkness. The kingdom of darkness is left to grope after truth because there is no light to understand truth. But in the kingdom of light, we not only see who God is, but we see everything by who God is. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said the sun, the brightness of the sun is not so that we can see the sun, but that by everything, but we can see the sun, we can see everything else by the sun. Is that everything else comes into view because of the brightness of the glory of God. And by the way, when God is being glorified in our church and when God is being glorified in our homes and he's being glorified in our hearts, there is a perspective on life that comes from that that nothing else can replace. That he is on display. We have nothing in this former kingdom. All our possessions lie in the kingdom to come. It is in Christ, only in Christ. There's no other foundation there's no other pathway to this. It's not a pathway of working harder and you'll be enlightened. It's not a pathway of, of fasting and you'll get understanding. But it is through the work of Christ that I have understanding and knowledge and that I'm empowered. And now I can endure circumstances and I can endure people and I can do so with joy because I understand that I've been taken out of the one kingdom, placed into another kingdom, that I've been redeemed, that I've been forgiven, and no man on earth can take that away from me. And when I rest in that truth, there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. To a pastor, what if we drift from it? The cross hasn't moved. We did. Run to the cross. The story is still the same. And we go back to the cross time and time again, and we're reminded over and over again of the message of the cross. Forgiveness, he says, redemption literally means to be rescued Here's the thing about a rescue. If someone would come into another country and rescue someone from its dominion, it must have more power than the dominion that we were held in. And our kingdom had more power. Our king has more power than the dominion of darkness, and he rescues us from darkness. Forgiveness. He's removed our sins. Psalm 103 says this. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Our sins have been forgiven. When you think of the east from the west, if, if you were going north and south, if you go north long enough, eventually you'll start going south. And there's a turning point where you start going south again. But when you go east to west, you never reach a place where east and west meet. You're constantly going east or you're constantly going west. And he's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. There's no place where they meet. Micah 7, 19, one of my favorite. He's buried our sins in the depths of the sea. There's a song that used to be sung years ago, and I, I remembered it just when I was studying this and looked it up. <clears throat> the, the, the verse verse goes, man has climbed every mountain, no matter how high he's conquered the planets, from sky to sky, but there is a place 
where man has not been, and that's where my Lord has buried my sin, in the depths of the sea of God's forgetfulness. God's removed our sins from us. He, the Bible says he remembers them no more. The, uh, Micah 7, 19 says the depths of the sea. Isaiah 43, 25 says he's blotted out our transgressions. Isaiah 44, 22, he's blotted out our transgressions. The Bible tells us that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. He has washed our sins away. And this is where we find our joy because you can't touch what Christ has done for me. Circumstances can't touch it, and I can't earn it. And this is what Paul is pushing to the Colossians, because if you're trying to measure up and you're trying to be enough, we need to remind ourselves that we are not enough. Jesus is enough, and we rest in him, in his sufficiency. One last passage of scripture. Luke chapter 10, if you would turn there with me. I want you to see this. If you're willing to turn, we'll put it on the screens as well. But Luke chapter number 10 Verse number 17 is where we'll begin. I think we're tempted to think, as we've been in this Christian life for some time, and I I will not do a raise of hands, but I would imagine many of you have been saved for several years. And we're tempted to think, okay, well, God qualified me to enter into this kingdom, but I need to keep up my credentials by my own effort. There needs to be some continuing education credits because I got to keep up my credentials and to make this go along. And that effort of our own almost leaves us in despair. And Jesus addresses the apostles here as he had sent the 70 out. And look what happens in verse 17 of chapter 10. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. They're excited. Look at the demons. They're, they're obeying us when we when use your name. They're subject to your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now that seems like an interesting interjection. I saw Satan fall. Verse number 19, behold, I give you your authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice in this. Don't put your confidence in this. And what is he saying about Satan? Satan was exalted in pride because of spiritual gifting. And because of the work he was accomplishing, he was exalted in pride. And that pride was his destruction. And you and I, can we can do one of two things when it comes to spiritual measuring up. We can be very filled with despair because we don't measure up. And the very next moment we can feel like, man, look at all I've done. I've memorized more Bible, I'm more faithful to church, and we puff ourselves up in spiritual pride. And he says, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice in the songs you can sing. And man, thank God for the musicians that God has blessed our church with. Thank God for the teachers of the word of God that we have in our midst. Thank God for those who serve in our midst. And all of those giftings are wonderful. But how many of you understand that no matter how eloquent the speaker or how gifted the voice or how talented the musician or how, uh, how powerful the communicator of the gospel in the streets, one day every man will close his eyes for the last time and he will lay in the grave and death will claim him. But I got news for you, not even death can take from me what Jesus tells me to rejoice in. And what does he tell us in this text to rejoice in? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Don't rejoice in gifting. Rejoice in grace. We don't have to rejoice in the painful circumstances and even the painful people, but we can rejoice in the grace that God gives us that painful circumstances and painful people can't take from me. And then I can operate in ministry in the midst of those circumstances and with those people. This is the power of the gospel. No, he is our salvation now. He is our hope. And this is where we find our joy.